all new reporter beats have been created during this pandemic, and journalists have done a tremendous job, really, of relaying a constant and ever-changing stream of information day after day after day after day. Uh, In my humble opinion, the very best around here is Julia Wong of Global News. She is a a constant presence at each and every one of these news conferences. She holds Hinshaw and the Premier to account. She asks the right questions and then passes along the accurate info to the audience. And on top of all that, she's been doing a little digging in the background, too. And Julia joins us now. Good morning, Julia. How are you doing? Good morning, Shay. It's good to hear your voice. Yeah, it's great to chat again. Um, You know, before we get into the focus of your story, which is awesome, um, first of all, kudos to the work you've been doing during all of this. What's it like been for you, you know, for the past, I guess, year, 14 months now? This this has been your beat. How's it been going? It's it's definitely been interesting. It's um, it's an interesting beat, as you know. It changes constantly. There's always something happening. And and as you were mentioning earlier, when you were talking about the vaccine passports and herd immunity and all, all that type of stuff, you know, this is a beat that we're reporting in real time. And the science is changing yeah. as scientists learn more about the virus so it's it's different every day I just wanted to ask you for a little inside baseball here. I haven't been to one of these uh, virtual news conferences with Hinshaw or Kenny, uh, and there's always a lot of speculation that I get from listeners and, and you see on social media and stuff, oh, these are cherry-picked questions, they're hand-picked, you know, blah, 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 people don't get follow-ups. What is the procedure? What's the process like? How do, how do you get chosen for a question? How do you get to that news conference? Yeah, very good question. And I've been uh, getting a lot of questions about that in particular as well. So these are still virtual press conferences. They have been virtual since, I want to say, April of last year. Mm -hmm. So it's been a long time since many of us have actually set our eyes physically on Dr. Hinshaw and and the Premier. Um, So we all dial in. And um, after you dial in, you have to punch certain numbers to get into the queue for questions. And so this is where I certainly have no idea how they pick who they pick or what order they pick people in. It's always a bit of a coin toss. Um, I never know if I'm actually going to get picked. It's certainly a nice surprise when I do, and we're always prepared for that. Um, but, you know, in terms of do they check our questions before we ask them, no, that does not happen. And if they required that, we would certainly not be interested in doing that. No, that wouldn't happen at all. So you're not submitting questions beforehand. They open up your phone line. They have no idea what you're going to ask them, right? Yes, exactly. Gotcha. Okay. Now, um, you, you've taken on this task over at Global for the past few years now of, of voiping things and uh, then digging through massive amounts of documents. Your latest one is pretty interesting. Tell us what you've been working on in the last little while. The first story aired last night. Yeah, so, you know, we all remember what the second wave was like. It was a very interesting time. It was very different than the first wave that we saw in the province. And we also know around that same time, And we did hear from the premier and and sort of the powers that be that there were issues with contact tracing. Mm. They were clear that that was happening. But we wanted to take a deeper dive into that. What exactly was happening? How bad was it really? So we filed a freedom of information request. And um, those are just my favorite things to do because they're an opportunity to actually see what's happening behind the scenes um, other than what we hear from our, our political leaders. So, so we saw the Freedom of Information request, um, and we were looking into the contact tracing situation, specifically in November and December, um, based on internal documents with Alberta Health Services. Yeah, so you got a chance to take a look. And there was a bunch of different things going on, right? Why don't we just pick through a couple of them? First of all, the backlog. We know eventually at some point that contact sy- tracing system essentially collapsed. They just couldn't keep up. But just how bad did that backlog get? Yeah, it, it was really interesting. You know, this is the first time it's really been quantified. We had heard words like overwhelmed. We had heard words like, you know, they can't keep up. 
But when we were taking a look at these reports, I mean, we see that backlog grow from, you know, 2,000 in early November to more than 23,000 by late November, early December. And when you look at that number, first off, it's just an extraordinarily large number that I don't think many people were expecting. But also, you think about all the people who never got a call for contact tracing. Now, to be clear, AHS said that they were, you know, still working with high-priority cases and and that type of thing, and and that was happening. But there were many other people who didn't fall within specific categories that would still allow for contact tracing. So in many cases, they were left to do it on their own. So that brings up the question of whether everyone actually did, Mm. and then whether they did it enough. You know, contact tracers are trained, and they're very skilled in going through all your movements. Like, it takes many, many hours to go through the process of contact tracing. So if perhaps someone who was doing it themselves was not as thorough, there may have been people they may have missed, and then there may have been people who just never bothered to contact trace at all. So it leads to many questions about how many people, A, had no idea that they were close contact, and B, you know, potentially that's how they, they got COVID. They had no idea. They weren't able to isolate. And then unknowingly, they were spreading it yeah. around the population. Now, I remember back when we were talking about this in November and December, and we saw this going on, and we saw the contact tracing was basically, can you phone somebody and tell them that you... I mean, it, it got into a, a, a horrible situation. But the the entire time when, when those questions were put to, um, you know, the officials by people like you and, and other reporters, the question always was, oh, no, we're handling it. We're going to have this many by this date. We're going to have this many by this date. We're hiring all kinds of new contact tracers. They didn't, did they? That's a, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a tricky thing because, first off, there are questions of why the province was not prepared for this second wave. Right. Um, we had seen a second wave starting in other countries across the world. We had seen it starting out east, and normally what happens out east, we typically see here within a few weeks. So, you know, there were many questions of why we weren't prepared when the second wave started, because we only had about 200 or so contact tracers around that time. Um, and then as we got deeper into the second wave, we had heard reassurances that, okay, we are going to get more. Oh, sorry, just to clarify, it was about 700 in September, uh, 700 contact tracers that we had in September. Um, but as we moved deeper into the second wave, it just seemed to take a really long time for all these contact tracers to get hired, to get onboarded, yeah. to actually start. They had said repeatedly, you know, we're trying to get to around 14, 1,600 by the end of the year, but we really only ended up with about 1,200 by the end of 2020. And by then, it was it was already a bit too late. You know, you hire these people, but you needed them a lot earlier. And we see from these documents that there are days, they say they need 2,000 contact tracers, and there are only 200, 300, maybe 400 working tops at the time, and they should have been more prepared for this. Okay, so we're talking primarily about AHS here, right? This is AHS that was responsible for doing this hiring and doing this staffing. That's that's who the documents are from? Yes, the documents are from AHS. So we did also pose, you know, the same questions that we posed to AHS to Alberta Health as well. Okay, um, so as you said, I mean, we have kind of an indication of obviously it probably just fueled the second wave, and we really had no way of knowing exactly what was going on in the province. Is there any way to document just how much worse things were during that second wave? I guess not, right? Because when you don't have the tracing, you don't really know exactly what's going on. Yeah, and so this goes back to the importance of contact tracing, and this is something the province knew very early on when this pandemic first started. You know, you test as much as you can, and then you contact trace, and when you contact trace, you figure out where cases are spreading, you isolate those people so they don't potentially spread it more, and, and that's how you try yeah. to stand the pandemic. Um, when, in the experts that we talked to for this story, so we talked to an epidemiologist, a health policy professor, both say, you know, it's, it's hard for them to quantify potentially how much 
worse the second wave was because we didn't have some of those details when it came to contact tracing. But, you know, they agree, both of them, that it inevitably did lead to more cases. And one of them, you know, even goes as far to saying that it, it led to more deaths in the province because we didn't have that system bolstered when we needed it to be. Um, Julia, just to give our listeners an example, like when we're, we're talking about these freedom of information requests, what are you requesting? What are you getting? And how much material do you have to go through? It's a tremendous amount, right? Yeah, so in, in this particular case, um, we knew that the situation got really bad in November, December, so that's where we focused our freedom of information request. Um, we got about more than 200 pages back from AHS. Um, but it was a very narrow scope. We knew certain things that we wanted to get. And so we didn't just, you know, a free-for-all type of request. It was, this is, you know, A, B, and C type of document that we're looking for. And so because of that, we were able to get it back within a fairly reasonable time. Okay, and part two airs tonight? Yes, part two. So to, um, tonight we're going to dive a little bit more into the issue of transparency. So again, we had heard that the situation was bad. Well, why didn't the province tell us more? Why didn't they tell us the magnitude of the situation? Because that potentially, our experts say, um, could have changed the game for many Albertans. Mm-hmm. Okay, that'll be interesting. Awesome. Thanks so much, Julia. Thanks so much, Shane. Appreciate your time. That's Julia Wong an investigative reporter over at Global Edmonton. And as you heard, she's done a really deep dive into that whole contact tracing situation that happened during the second wave. And a lot of you asking, is this a failure of AHS or the government? Um, And and so I put that question to Julian. You know, the hiring of those contact traces and um, the staffing levels and things like that are an AHS responsibility, right? Uh, And that's what she's uh, pointing out, the fact that AHS didn't have the number of contact tracers on board. And you know what? Every time we talk about this, I hear from listeners who say, I applied to be a contact tracer and I never heard anything back. I know people personally that were in that situation. Qualified, ready, willing to do the job, applied, never heard back. And we know they were massively understaffed.